Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, November 5th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. The time is fast approaching for our commentary roast of Rabbi Mayor Sully Soloveitchik on the 22nd of November, a Monday, here in New York City. Go to commentary.org slash roast 21 to find out more if you want to buy a ticket. It's, as I've told you before, not a cheap ticket. This is our big fundraiser of the year, but it's going to be thrilling, fun. It's a hugely fun event. You will see us doing some version of, abbreviated version of the uh, podcast for laughs um, and other highlights of the year uh, in in an event that uh, that many people say, and I'm I, just because it's my event, I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but many people say they consider it sort of the highlight of the dinner fundraising season for them. So, uh, commentary.org/slash/rose21 for information, and if you actually decide you want to come and you uh, you you sign up, we will let you know where it is and what time it is. And, uh, and, uh, and what you can do to join us and have, uh, have the time of your life. Uh, you know, we ha- couldn't do one last year. We're back this year. Um, uh, enormous interest, a lot of enthusiasm. We're going to be 400 people at least, uh, in the room to celebrate with us. So commentary.org slash Rose 21 with me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Noah, uh, you have been attempting to dig into the innards, not that it's easy, of the uh, supposed bill, the Build Back Better bill that may or may not be voted on today and may or may not be, uh, be sort of passed by the House today. Uh, we're not really sure. Supposedly at 5 o'clock this morning, uh, they reached the final text of a bill that, according to House procedures, there should be 36 hours to allow members and their staffs to go through it to make sure that there's nothing in there that they can't vote on. Uh, they are not going to allow this period, apparently. Uh, they're, they're, they have to vote on a rule. Uh, by the time you hear this, this may all be moot anyway, but they have to vote on the rule of how they're going to proceed with the debate and if that rule passes, which will be two hours of debate, followed by some vote for the large infrastructure bill, followed or vote for that, followed by the infrastructure, what a blah, 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 blah. I'm saying blah, blah, blah for this one reason, which is that none of this matters because this bill is dead. This bill is dead as they are voting for it now. Noah, as the as our expert... <laughs> On the bill, meaning that you spent half an hour just trying to dig through whatever it is that anyone can get from the text of it, which is almost impossible to find, by the way. Uh, what do we got in this bill? Yeah, <laughs> about an hour's worth of research. and it's An like hour? I'm teeth. sorry. I downgraded yeah, the intensity well, of your research. I apologize. <laughs> Thank you. Let's be, let's be uh, accurate here. But like you said, if you're interested in meandering circular... Uh, convoluted process stories about where this is and who supports it and who's talking to who, you are covered. But if you actually want to know what the heck is in this thing, it's impossible. Um, but I did manage to 
peel out a couple of nuggets, many of which are new. A lot of this negotiation happened over the last 36 hours because they're putting a lot of stuff back into this bill that was taken out of it in negotiations when it was actually when it had a chance of passing, which it doesn't now. Um, but passing few, through the Senate is what we're Senate, saying. Right. Yeah. It may not even pass the House, but if it passes through the Senate, uh, through the Senate. Um, but yeah, I put, put a couple of nuggets that are really easy for Republicans to argue against which doesn't make any sense. But anyway, I'm going to analogize a little bit here, so feel free to interrupt me. Among them are the pay-fors. Uh, one of them is a surtax on people who have $10 million or more, also $25 million is another graduated uh, system, just an in income, but they tax pass-throughs and pass-through businesses and trusts, for example. And the threshold at which point you can be taxed at this rate is just $200,000 in revenue. That's a small business. That's a really small business. So now we have a small attacks on small businesses. Republicans get to argue against. Same thing for this net investment income tax. Uh, if you have like a, if you're a joint filer with an S corporation or a partnership, that's about five hundred thousand in income. But it is just thirteen thousand for a family business with ownership shares held in a taxable trust. That hits a lot of people, and I know that's kind of complicated. But you won't—it won't be complicated once Republicans say, "Guess what? <laughs> if you have any money stashed away, it's going to be taxed now in these in a really higher rate." One of the things that Democrats love, and they say everybody loves, is um, drug price negotiation. So Medicare now pays seventy-five percent of what insurers pay on average drugs on the market for between nine and twelve years, based on graduating, based on longevity on the market. So this only affects ten drugs before twenty twenty-five, right? No big deal. You're going to pay less on pharma. Everybody loves it, but it's essentially price fixing. It fixes the prices based on uh, the Medicare reimbursements, and which means that drug makers are going to get less. Uh, revenue for for um, what they produce. Now, again, where people think of pharma as just like giant businesses, but it's a small business industry. A, almost eighty percent of the of the industry has uh, only a hundred employees because it's mostly R and D, compliance, finance. That's really all pharma is. So the line, you know, the, the line writes itself again: a tax on on small businesses and Medicare cuts, cuts to reimbursement for pharma, and tax breaks to favored constituencies. Who are those favored constituencies? Like journalists, for example. Within this bill, there is a provision that would provide a credit of up to $25,000 to defray employment expenses and $15,000 for the next four years for each employee at a small uh, reporting outfit. So now... Oh, specifically, though, a small reporting outfit. I get this. This is how the federal government is supposed to define this, or the IRS is a small governing outfit dedicated to local news. So what right. we have now is essentially a new, a backdoor form of government licensing in which they will determine, government will determine, some employee at the IRS will determine that X news site or X thing on the internet or whatever dedicates itself to local news and therefore uh, can claim, is it fifteen or $25,000 per job? Per employee, as, yeah. As it, which is effectively government rendering a judgment on what, the what what that is doing like what 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 an individual news site or journalistic entity is doing right which is unconstitutional nakedly almost certainly um but that's not all folks not only are we bailing out businesses we're also bailing out hollywood um, music producers, television producers, live theatrical producers get to deduct expenses capped at $150,000 now that's probably not a terrible provision given what happened to them over the course of the last year, but it's you have to be a, a political neophyte 
not to see how easy it is for Republicans to argue against that sort of thing. It's to say nothing of salt tax relief, which is literally a tax break for millionaires and billionaires. Okay, we, have to, like we have to describe, if you don't know what salt tax relief is, it is the federal, uh, it is the deduction of uh, of state and local taxes uh, against your federal taxes. And of course, right. it's capped it, at ten thousand dollars after Republicans right amended now, this in the twenty seventeen tax yeah, code. Yeah, revision. it used to be that you deducted your state and local taxes from your federal taxes, and of course, this then benefited people who live in high tax states and localities because they got some relief from the high state and local taxes. But um, it is the it is the opposite of a progressive tax. It is a progressive tax cut, shall we say, because obviously the more you pay in state and local taxes, the more deduction you have at the federal level. And therefore, if you have a, you know, if you make $2 million a year in New Jersey or in New York or in any really hot or California, any really high tax state, um, you get, I don't know, in some calculations you're talking about, yeah, that they raise the cap to, is it $80,000? Yeah, I think it's in the 70s or, or low 80s, something. Right, so lines. essentially you, you uh, uh, a lot of people in those states will immediately get an $80,000 tax deduction. Yeah, this is you good for be, me. You wouldn't, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm I mean, not, you, I'm you probably okay won't it. hit the $80,000, no. but others but other, others will. No, 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 um, it's graduated yeah. so that you really yeah. feel it when you start making tens of millions of dollars in income per year or more right, right. that's when you really start to, to otherwise it's just a couple hundred thousand a couple hundred dollars up to a thousand dollars for right. most most people but even it really so it's a, a thousand for... it's a thousand dollar tax cut you get if you live in new jersey or california that you can't you it's almost impossible for you to get in let's say florida where you know there is no state there's no income tax. tax okay yeah last but not least um they decided to throw in there at the very last minute uh, a provision for illegal immigrants who arrived in the country prior to January 1st, 2011, to apply for parole. Now, that is not citizenship. That is not a green card. But it shields you from deportation and grants permanent work status. Roughly 7 million are eligible. Um, never going to pass the Senate. Probably doesn't even pass the parliamentarians muster. It's just a positioning statement. Along with all these, it's just positioning statements for Democrats to say, look, we did this which Republicans will say, yes, look, they did this. And it's, it's, it, nobody's going to be on the two different pages here. They're all going to be talking about the same bill in terms that are very eerie. Um, when you look back on 2010, they're passing something that no one has read, that no one knows what's in it, that is massive social engineering, that nobody really is, is jazzed about except progressives who are not enthused about it enough to turn out to the polls. But Republicans are going to be fired up over all this that never happened but that that might have happened if they weren't engaged. Right. And that's going to gonna be the key. We need to explain this. So just 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 to flat out say this, what happens today in the House of Representatives will not become law. Now, if they vote on the infrastructure bill, which has already passed the Senate, if they vote on the infrastructure bill, which seems to be uh, having a vote on this this larger bill, uh, is the precondition for getting the House to vote on the infrastructure bill. They will get the infrastructure bill into law at some point in the next week or two, and Biden will have a big signing ceremony and the infrastructure bill will, 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 will be made into law. So in that sense, going through this process is a kabuki play just to get the infrastructure bill passed. 
But it is a gigantic, in-kind contribution to the Republican Party's efforts to take back the House and win the Senate in 2022. Because it doesn't matter whether it passes or not. Uh, yeah, progressives may think that they can go back to the to the well and say to their voters, look, we got this, we got that, we got the other thing, but those evil Republicans in the Senate made it impossible for this to pass. That um, That is bupkis next to the hundreds of millions of dollars of, of free advertising Republicans are getting Can from I... Democrats overreaching on their social spending agenda in the districts that Republicans can take away from Democrats in the purple districts. Just good. Hand them the baseball bat with which the Republican candidate, as long as he's not a crazy person, can just bash the Republican moderate, the Democratic moderate over the head over and over and over again for a year until that Republican, that Democratic moderate is a husk on the floor, bleeding from the head and and with no protection from the onslaught that is about to overtake him or her. You, you forgot the, the what I hope will be the favorite bat that they will wield, which is uh, beefing up IRS enforcement to, to seek out tax cheaters, which isn't targeting just the millionaires. The idea is we're going to massively increase the size of the IRS, which, as we know, Americans already love, one of their favorite government agencies. And we're going to get them on the case. Now, when an American hears that, I mean, I like to assume that most people try to try to be honest on their tax tax paying and whatnot. But I suspect there are a fair number of average voters who start going, hmm. So my my Thanksgiving dinner turkey costs three times what it did last year. Everything's expensive. I can't get my kids Christmas gifts here on time. Everything's collapsing. Oh, and I'm likely to face an audit in the <laughs> in the near future. That right there is, I mean, at a time again when when trust in institutions, governmental institutions, is at a low for the people who are in power and controlling those institutions to say, yeah, we're going to bring down the hammer because we want to pay for all this stuff that nobody said they wanted except an extreme left wing of our party. I also want to add to the social engineering point, the they're giving a lot of tax breaks that and, and encouragement and money to people who structure their families in such a way that they have to always hire outside childcare. This is part of this. Uh, and the reason this will anger Americans is that when people sacrifice family income to have a parent stay at home to help with kids, that is a sacrifice for most families. It's not a bunch of rich people who can afford, you know, not to can afford to have someone at home. People sacrifice the family budget to do that because it's important to them as a value proposition. You need to we need to spell you need to spell this out. There is a specific tax break for child care for the employment of child care workers. Non as long as the child care worker works in a in an in an establishment or an area outside the house in which the child being cared for is domiciled. So it's not just it is it is that this is a tax break for childcare establishments. Like if you have if your grandmother, if your mother as a grandmother comes in to help take care of your kid in your house, there is no tax break. But if you have a twenty two year old at a college who doesn't know any, you know, doesn't know your kid from Adam, uh, your childcare institution, you know, your daycare center can hire as many of them as they want. And take a tax break on on each of them. 
Right. And the reason so that the argument is that this helps uh, uh, single uh, single parents with with childcare, And I get that part of the argument. But but what it also does is it's similar to the overarching philosophy behind a lot of why we ended up with welfare reform, which is it's, it's encouraging a certain kind of structure and a certain kind of power of the state in the private decision making of families. It's encouraging families to make one decision rather than another. There's kind of a familiar dynamic emerging uh, here in which which is the fatal conceit of the technocratically inclined where they just they they love the public but hate people like this is some really basic politics because it's not in hundred percent insane to increase funding to the IRS because the in, the agency is overworked the agency does allow a lot of revenue to slip through its fingers just in part they can't process it that's true. But the public hates the IRS. It should be intuitive, but they can't bring themselves to say it's intuitive because that un- that undermines the progressive mission. Likewise, illegal immigrants, uh, you know, giving them work status. We have a labor shortage in this country. We're desperate for workers in this country. That's not a, a dumb provision. But if you have any elementary political understanding of the dynamics around immigration and providing them with work status, uh, absent as citizen, the, the the process of getting them citizenship and securing the border, which is utterly absent from any negotiation or discussion around this sort of thing, it's politically toxic. You don't have to be taught that lesson for the fourteenth time in the last decade. Yeah, but the attraction of the IRS provision is that it's a gimmick. It's a budgetary gimmick. They say they're going to expand or triple or quadruple the number of IRS auditors or whatever, so they can claim that they will collect. I don't know what the number is, was in the White House thing, $500 billion, $600 billion in taxes that are going uncollected because the IRS is understaffed, which means if you take this at its word and not as just an absurd effort to pull a number out of thin air um, where they can claim that they can collect all this money to pay, offset the cost of the bill uh, without raising taxes or raising tax rates or whatever, Um then if you accept that this is in earnest, that means the IRS is going to be supercharged with the obligation to do whatever it can to gen- generate the revenue the White House is promising. And the big deal here is that um, it's not going to be collecting that money from the ultra-wealthy who... Uh, hire a battery of lawyers and accountants <laughs> to help them do whatever they do legally and not and and do it you know above board it will be a you know it will be mid-level taxpayers who will be dinged with you know $15,000 bill on the claim that they claimed something that they shouldn't claim or that they and interest they, they on what they, they didn't depreciation. pay right. right or they have they, they claim depreciation on something that they uh and so you know I think it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick in one way, and to the extent that it's not a gimmick, it is the sort of thing that will generate rage and loathing in an enormous number of people who will suddenly find themselves under a microscope in the form of an audit. Because that's really great, you know. Audit two million more people in the United States and see how the pub see how the public reacts. Um, you know. Elections, as we know, are are, are not um, are not decided at this moment by enormous margins. Uh, you know, hand hand people in a certain type of place. You know, have twenty thousand people in a in a given congressional district audited who were not audited before. 
and those 20,000 people are going to vote for whoever isn't in power. And it's just a sort of, that's just sort of a given. I mean, just as a, a practical political matter. And I think it needs to be said, Abe, that um, this is all that we've been able to dig up this morning. And by we, I mean Noah. Because um, I was listening to I was listening to a movie podcast earlier, uh, <laughs> and not I wanted to dig. I was looking. I wanted to dig. I really did. But uh, but then Noah said he was for. digging, and I let him do it. Okay. Look, I think this is exciting. There's a framework. <laughs> I love um, the framework. I, yeah. Look, it's baffling because you know hearing Noah's list. It would be one thing if everything that they were throwing together here consisted of sort of pie in the sky, idealistic, soft, cuddly, happy things. Still a terrible idea because uh, the, the 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 public's um, sympathy for that agenda is that as is as we saw on Tuesday is is really limited at this point. It's it's at a low, but the degree to which all these things are sort of uh not 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 cynical exactly but um unjust in 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 ways that uh uh sort of liberals would find unjust um that that no one would actually sort of sympathize with uh what when when you when you dig into it um it's just extraordinary political malpractice and and because it's not going to be law all they are doing is sort of ratifying the the threat that Republicans will keep at bay. I mean, you know, I understand that the results on Tuesday should not actually hamper the Congress in the performance of its duties, which is to say, if Democrats in Congress think that they need to pass, you know, a gigantic bill because they think it's important for the country and all that, they they should do it irrespective of the results. They shouldn't be thinking politically. They should be thinking in terms of what's best for their communities and best for the country. On the other hand, did did somebody forget to take their Thorazine? What on earth? I mean, even the New York Times editorial page, the editorial board of the New York Times, in an act of unbelievable chutzpah, has an editorial today saying... Democrats, you've gone too far left. Don't you understand this wokeness is going to kill people and you're reaching too far. You better pull it all back. This page that has been cheerleading, cheerleading for this garbage that could not bring itself to endorse Amy Klobuchar alone as the Democratic nominee for president because Amy Klobuchar was too right wing. So they endorsed her and Elizabeth Warren who is the heart and soul of this bill, Elizabeth Warrenism, and Bernie Sandersism is the heart and soul of this bill. They have the chutzpah, but yet the sanity to say everything we want in life is now about to be flushed down the toilet. Can you guys pull it back a little bit so that the demons on the right don't take over? And there is Nancy Pelosi. We're going to have a vote. It's so exciting. I'm so happy. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the paper of record this morning is a piece on social justice math. Two plus two equals five, that sort of thing, which mm-hmm. isn't happening. And, in California. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. There, 
but it's not no, happening. But, but, it doesn't actually exist, except right. where it does exist. And when it does exist, it's good, but it isn't happening anywhere else, even when it is happening everywhere else. And nobody should notice it because it's all a hoax and it's fake, even though that's your lived experience. Um, yeah, this is a, it's a confused message out of the gray lady this morning. No, this is very interesting. No, 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 no. I, I thought this was really interesting. The, the, the website of the New York times, the lead story on the website is the story about an effort to redefine the math curriculum in California and how it has come under attack and under assault, even from liberals who are saying, you're saying, don't you, we can't teach calculus because it's too hard for black people. That's actually a message that you want to impart in the United States in 2021. That is what they're saying. And the Times decided to highlight this article. That's like a Fox News, you know, five-day-a-week war on Christmas topic. Not the sort of thing you ordinarily see except in Michael Powell's column and commentary in the New York Times. They are scared out of their wits. They put this piece there. And they're not run by the same departments, like whoever you know chooses the leads and the uh, you know on the website and the and the lead editorial are not run by the same departments. But but um, Democrats and liberals, there are two kinds now. One is damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. They're firing at us and they're gonna they're they're taking down our ships. But so we better just keep going. And then there's the other. It's like you know run away, run away. You know from Monty Python, and that is. A more rational reading of what happened on Tuesday, again, more important in New Jersey than in Virginia, where the swing in New Jersey was 15 points. Where there's a Democratic, there is a Democratic margin of a million and a half voters over Republicans in New Jersey. And in the end, Phil Murphy is going to win, it looks like, by 75,000 votes. By 75,000 votes. Um, this is a you know, it's it's the earthquake. Everybody says it is. Can, can I just I just the, um, to stick to the woke math thing, because it's not just that they're you know, they it, it's used to claim that they want to uh, shrink the gap, the you know, the racial gap in, in math achievement. But what it actually says is that exactly the stuff that drove parents mad in this off year election. It says the draft, the California guidelines says they reject the idea of any naturally gifted children. Um, but the but the nugget graph that the Times, I can't believe they even summarized it. They, the reason, by the way, that they summarize most of this is that if they had to quote the guidelines directly, it would be even more horrifying. But they say the draft suggested that math should not be colorblind and that teachers could use lessons to explore social justice. For example, by looking out for gender stereotypes and word problems or applying math concepts to topics like immigration or inequality. Again, when you hear mainstream media sources saying critical race theory type ideas are a myth, they are not. This is what it looks like in practice, is using math word problems to lecture children on immigration. And you're pretty sure that we know which which uh, side of the aisle the immigration policy talk and the word problem is going to be on. I think even more important than that in, in, in relation to this is, as I say, I mean, there's a kind of sanity point here, which is, we keep saying, "Are we? T- am I taking crazy pills? Suddenly, Democrats woke up a Wednesday morning, and the ones who just, you know, are on the Democratic team and want Democrats to win and want Republicans to lose, but aren't committed to the social justice agenda, are in a panic because they realize that they've that that they they went along with something that may actually be wildly injurious to their larger concerns. 
their team rooting or what they generally see as their own cultural liberalism that is now a threat from the cultural radicalism that they had decided for whatever reason they should not contest or that they should allow to take the whip hand. Abe, you were? Yeah, part of this sort of revelation on the part of some liberals now, um, I think, has to do with the fact that and Tuesday, I think, really, uh, the, the election uh, really demonstrated this to, to an important extent, has to do with the fact that sort of this whole time for the past years or so, um, there was this media narrative that successfully managed to say everything bad that you're hearing about our agenda, the, our, our, the, the progressive agenda and everything's going, that's Republican and conservative hysteria. That's garbage. We're doing great things. And that was just that fog, that that defense just floated out there, stayed out there, stayed out there. And it came crashing down at once. That is why elections are so important, by the way, because you spend all your time in between elections dealing with this question, which is the polls say this, the polls say Biden's that. the polls, And then then there is the argument that follows, you know, we you don't have actual public guidance on what's going on that's so you say well they only think this because this hasn't passed yet or they only think that because well, let's wait until the second quarter gdp numbers look better or they're going to feel better because covid goes better and all of that and then there are these moments they come every year they can come faster because they do sometimes special elections play this role unexpected deaths or something like that like teddy kennedy's death and the vote in, in Massachusetts uh, for Senate, uh, where where Scott Brown unex- wildly unexpectedly won that Senate race and, and was the harbinger of basically the end of any effectiveness of the Obama administration, though, the, of course, Obama was reelected in 2012. Um, votes are 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 inarguable. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that that Trump and the election was stolen stuff um, is, is is so bad. It is so bad because it ra- when you raise questions about the legitimacy of the election, you also make it impossible for the political world to move on and to sort of come to a consensus about what X meant and what this event meant and how to understand it. Um, because in the end, the people who really do this for a living do come to a consensus both in both parties and in, you know, I know people can have interpretations and say, well, you know, this really went badly because we didn't do enough of this, so we should probably do that. But those are arguments to be had. When you call into question the legitimacy of the one thing in this country that we do together, the one thing that we do en masse, the one thing that really tells us uh, where we are and where we're going, when you call that into question, as Stacey Abrams did in 2018 and as Trump did in 2020, you make it impossible. You freeze the political class in stasis and in focusing and fixating on technical policy matters like how voting machines work, as though that's actually what matters in America as opposed to policy. And that had the effect, I think, even some of that in Trump had the effect of blinding Biden and the Democrats to the insane course that they were that they were going on as 2021 progressed, that they had convinced themselves that they were in that, you know, that uh, that the election was bigger than it was and it was more meaningful than it was and that the winning in, in Georgia was more meaningful uh, than it was. 
because that reinforced their priors and because they were so horrified by Trump and all of that, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, you know, this was kind of a jump ball. This is it's kind of a, a good, jump ball election. Yeah, the, the accusations, it's such a good point. They, they, when you do that, you mute or just generally distort the voice of, of the American people. And then so, sort of no one knows where we stand. So in 2001, when George W. Bush literally won a jump ball election, he did both simultaneously. Now, we, can, we, we don't know what would have happened politically had September 11th not happened. But in the eight months after the jump ball election, George W. Bush simultaneously went to the right on his cabinet appointments and on policy statements and on pursuing certain types of things, including, uh, you know, investigating stem cells for, you know, and all of that. And in his and and and, and passed the tax cut and sought a bipartisan consensus on this education bill that Republicans all hate in 20 years. Everyone yells about how terrible No Child Left Behind was. But I'm saying that when you look at what he did, he said, I understand, I understand that I barely, I didn't, I barely won this election and that we, and that we have a 50-50 Senate. I understand what happened here and I'm going to live within the political reality. And for some reason, Democrats decided they were not going to live within political reality, and we're still there even after this election. Nancy Pelosi is going to pass a, is going to pass through the House a bill that is dead in the water in the Senate that is a campaign gift to Republicans and is not much of a gift to Democrats because they've all gone crazy, because they didn't take their Thorazine, or because they are blinding themselves or they're listening <laughs> to MSNBC pundits say, no, it really is all racism, so we just need to keep going. Uh, great. You know, as, as a lot of people have been saying, great, let them continue to say that it's racism and see where that gets them next year. This is a fantastic message. Have, a, have somebody, have, have, a, have a Republican governor win a state by 10 points, you, know, you know, win by two points in a state that Biden won by 10 with a 12 point shift and, 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 or, or that the previous governor won by nine and an 11 point shift. And just say that those people who were forced, who were, who were um, visionary enough to go democratic in 2017 and 2020 uh, simply turned racist over the last nine months and then became monstrous evil, evildoers. Well, they can, they can join all those. You, yeah. They can join all those Obama voters who voted for Trump too. They, there's just a really a really growing party there of voters who you know clearly yeah, are racist and turn on a dime. Yeah. So let me let me just uh, tell you guys. I've been telling you this week. Um, today will be a good day to read uh, David Bonson's newsletters, Dividend Cafe and the DC Today dot com, with the news about the jobs report uh, being so. Um, uh, the jobs report today was really unexpectedly uh, good, and there were revisions upward in the job numbers that are uh, very confusing about whether <laughs> there is a labor shortage or not. It's it's weird. It's a we're in a weird we're in a weird situation, and so we need um, expertise like David's, uh, run, you know, running the Bonson Group, that million dollar wealth advisory firm um, uh, that obsesses over the integration of markets and policy. But I do want to tell you about David's new book. There's no free lunch. 250 economic truths um, because if you want to know where you get that kind of rooted understanding of markets policy faith and and freedom um, 
this book is for you. It's written as a sort of daily economic devotional, uh, pithy commentary of 250 economic principles and quotations from famous economists and thinkers that will provide you with a deeper understanding of the foundational beliefs of free enterprise. You don't have to be a PhD economist to understand this. It's written for those who instinctively favor a free market system, but want to understand why better and want to be able to evangelize for it with their friends who understand it even less. The book provides a faith-based worldview defense and does so with 250 single-page entries that will help you reflect, discern, and understand. There's no free lunch. 250 Economic Truths from our friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all good bookstores everywhere. Now, let, let's move on a little bit because uh, there is some crazy news. Um, this uh, slow uh, slow cooking, uh, leak-free investigation started by uh, Attorney General uh, Bill Barr into the um, question of the handling of uh, Trump's uh, allegations regarding uh, dirty tricks in the 2016 election aimed at Trump, right? Not the Mueller investigation, but the second investigation that was started, uh, I think, last year, um, is now bearing some pretty astonishing fruit. Um, if you've been reading Eli Lake's pieces in our magazine, uh, you know uh, something about this, um, but uh, uh, rising questions about how the FBI got these warrants to investigate American citizens uh, based on uh, intelligence that we now know was faulty or false. Uh, Intelligence that we know was faulty or false largely as a result of the internal investigation of the FBI by its own uh, Inspector General Michael Horowitz. And what happened yesterday is that uh, Durham, the special prosecutor, indicted uh, Igor Dovchenko, who was the lead investigator uh, for Christopher Steele, the author of the infamous Steele dossier, uh, the document that was used and peddled around in the fall of 2016, and nobody, no, no organization would touch alleging that Trump had been compromised by by Russian intelligence owing to, in some ways, owing to his behavior in 2013 in Moscow, supposedly during uh, during a uh, beauty contest uh, <laughs> visit. Um, and eventually BuzzFeed published this, uh, p- published this uh, dossier, and, uh, and then we were off to the races with talk about a P-tape and various other things. Um, so according to the indictment, much of the evidence promulgated in the Steele dossier, now discredited, came not from Russian intelligence, but from a guy with the odd New York name of Charles Dolan. I say odd New York name because he is not Charles Dolan, the guy who destroyed the Knicks and Madison Square Garden and 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 every good team in in the world with his son, but another guy named Charles Dolan who was a Clinton Democrat. Uh, and was working with the Clinton campaign. So it appears that he fed Dovchenko rumors. Dovchenko said they came from Russian intelligence. And then uh, 
another lawyer working with the Clinton uh, administration named Sussman, I think. I mean, I mean, I'm not looking at any paperwork here. Michael Sussman. Michael Sussman then took this stuff and went to the FBI and said, you need to start investigating Carter Page and this one and that one. And then the FBI went and got these FISA warrants and started spying on U.S. citizens. Sussman also lied to the FBI. Sussman uh, has been indicted for yeah. lying to the FBI right. on what he did. I mean, the... the, the on on not disclosing his... his, his that he His was, connection to the, to the Clinton, Clinton campaign. campaign. Right. Yeah. So the Steele dossier is discredited. Again, we've been writing about this, uh, Eli's been writing about this on our pages now for, for two years, but the Steele dossier is discredited, but is used as a key source for the FISA investigations, the foreign intelligence... Uh, supervisory court uh, uh, efforts to uh, find out whether Trump was compromised. And uh, at the very least, um, wildly misbehaved, particularly in the case of of, of Carter Page, uh, but not just in the case of Carter Page. I'm now again forgetting the, the other guy, the other guy. Um, uh, who got a 14-day sentence and then got and then and then was pardoned? I can't remember. Anyway, uh, so um, it may end up in the long run that we are we are going to f- that the claim of Trump fans is that um, in fact the dirty tricks, everything bad that happened was a result of a democratic uh, a game being played on Trump. Um, that that was done to try to defeat him in the case of election or to give them grounds to stage a coup against him in some fashion or other after the election. That kind of language is so on the nose that it's too parallel to the, you know, to the anti-Trump claims about Trump running a coup and, and all that, that I, I find it, it's, it's like too convenient. But, um, uh, but it would be fascinating if uh, the end result of this entire Russiagate thing was a whole bunch of people going to jail um, for uh, lying to the FBI and investigators about how they were materially involved in this effort to make up stuff about Trump and then peddle it to credulous news organizations and even more horribly, a credulous Federal Bureau of Investigation that should know better than to believe the nonsense that was being peddled to them. That, that, by the way, to me is the most horrifying bit of this new uh, revelation that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is supposed to have certain standards because we're talking about, as you say, John, spying on American citizens who might or might not be collaborating with foreign intelligence agencies. So the fact that they took, when you start looking at the chain of custody of the Steele dossier, that that was enough evidence. And evidently, there what's emerged from this recent indictment is some evidence that there were some people in the FBI who raised questions about the legitimacy of it. But from the top down, James Comey at all, it was very clear this is exactly what they wanted to see and hear. And so they were they they somehow rationalized this as as legitimate enough to to pursue. And it should have been taken much more seriously in terms of pursuing that kind of warrant. It was taken seriously. You know, I, I said this thing about how it was peddled to the press. It was peddled to the press in September and October of 2016 with the hope that the Steele dossier would get published and run and become a major story uh, in the run-up to the election and thereby defeat Trump's chances of winning. And most news organizations taking a look at it 
said, I ain't going anywhere near this. I am not touching this. And if you remember the infamous, scandalous decision by BuzzFeed to publish the dossier, they did so and said, we can't verify any of this information, but we're doing it anyway. Why? Because we hate Trump and we want to destroy Trump. I mean, they didn't say it that way, but that's the ultimate purpose. You are not allowed by elementary standards of whatever to publish things that you do not know to be true. That is actually actionable. And who knows? I mean, I don't know who's going to take action against BuzzFeed because it's weird. I mean, only Trump can really take action against BuzzFeed since it was he was libeled. And it's probably either statute of limitations has passed or he's already decided he's not going down that road or whatever. But I mean, the discrediting of the Steele dossier uh, is a, you know, MSNBC, uh, you know, with which, uh, you know, I, I have a contractual uh, relationship. Nonetheless, I mean, MSNBC's entire daytime lineup seems to be dedicated to the notion that the Steele dossier is true years after the Steele dossier has been disproven. What what I find most horrifying about all this is that the, the Clinton campaign, to the extent that they that members will be found guilty of of doing the things that that uh, some of these indictments assert we're playing with fire. Um, this, the, the whole Trump Russia conspiracy narrative investigation really took the country down a rabbit hole that we're still going down in, in other ways, um, having to do with distrust and paranoia. Um, and you know, Durham is not done. You know, he's a, apparently very slow and methodical about this. And there's going to be more revelations. Look, uh, a central fact here. So so the, the reason I have a problem with the Trump narrative that, you know, this was all a dirty trick is I, I don't think it was. I think there was genuine panic uh, in certain circles at the possibility that Trump could win election. After all, it was September, whatever, August, September, October of 2016. And while most conventional opinion thought that Hillary was going to take it. You know, he wasn't running 15 points behind her. You know, Bob Dole ran 15 points behind Clinton for for months. He was four, five, six points down. And, of course, he ultimately won. Um, and so there was panic. And not to be – not to say to be fair to them, but, I mean, to 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 justify the panic – was Trump's own bizarre unwillingness to say anything negative about Putin, to act like he was kind of weirdly friendly to Russia. And then, of course, when he became president, we had this bizarre bifurcated circumstance in which he continued to kind of soft-pedal any personal criticism of Putin and to kind of coddle Putin while running a very aggressively anti-Russian foreign policy, very aggressively anti-Russian, that um, that that nobody could then explain while while Mueller was going through the whole process of trying to prove that Trump was a Russian agent, because in policy terms he was vastly more hostile to Russia than Obama had been. But I don't know that that makes it any less a dirty trick. I mean. I, uh, look, those, those are concerns no, I mean, that, that I that I shared, you know, right, early in yeah, the in yeah. the Trump campaign too. But but you know, going to the FBI and and 
you know, with with bad stories, not disclosing who you're connected to. Uh, you know, the, but remember that right. Sussman was the one who told the FBI that uh, that th there was a connect. There was strange communications between Trump Tower and a Russian bank. Um, stories that went nowhere. Bank. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. Look again; these things have to be adjudicated. But it sounds pretty dirty to me. Well, let me put it this way: uh, ingenuous. Okay, let me put it like that. The fear was real. Okay, the fear that Trump was an a Russian, an agent of Russian influence, was real and wasn't made up. And so they were willing to believe any evidence that came their way or any rumor, any piece of gossip that came their way that reinforced that prior. But again, elementary news, or news organizations engaged in elementary professional conduct, refused to touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole, and the FBI went for it. The FBI went for it. News organizations don't have um, investigatory powers paid for uh, by the public diamond. As Christine says, one of the reasons that some of us were very hesitant to say that there was something untoward going on here was precisely that we were told or we understood that the FISA court had this incredibly high barrier uh, to start surveillance. That the, the standard, I can't remember the actual wording, but they had to sort of have almost certainty that the person that they wanted to investigate was, in fact, an agent of influence in order to start the wiretapping. They needed all of this, and it turned out what they were using were articles that they themselves had sourced from an individual source then were quoting back. There was no source. And it all went back to the Clinton campaign. This, I mean, this right. is the thing that it, it all all roads led back to some operative and or supporter of Hillary Clinton wanting this story out there, wanting these investigations to happen. Right. But I think we can say of a certainty that every reporter in Washington and in New York was a supporter of the Clinton campaign. In, you know, in 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 sort of degree, if not in, you know, actual fact, wasn't like a paid supporter, a paid employee of the Clinton campaign. And they wouldn't touch it. They wouldn't go near it, I think, I think basically for two reasons, one of which was they couldn't prove it and that wasn't their. And the other is that they saw the backfire potential. They saw that if they published this, they could be in a Dan Rather situation in which they would publish something that was so easily discreditable that it might have a boomerang effect and create sympathy for Trump in September and October of 2016 that might retard their their genuine interest, which is why you actually uphold independent standards so that you don't get blamed for bad things happening. And for some reason, that was something that was of more interest to the mainstream media than it was to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, and James Comey, who then as now remains the worst public servant of our of our lifetime. I mean, the worst and most disgraceful public servant. I mean, my lifetime, Nixon was probably a more disgraceful public servant. But, uh, but I mean, James Comey um, is, uh, you know, sets a new a new low or a new a new standard low or a new low of no standards or whatever um anyway it's pretty uh it's pretty amazing was there anything else we needed to we needed to talk about oh how about the milk thing should we spend a couple minutes on the milk thing cnn does the story uh thursday morning 
uh, about you know why there's economic discontent uh, in America that helped lead to the election, and somebody interviews uh, a family um, with a bunch of foster kids who says, you know, I buy what did they say? I buy twelve gallons of milk a week, and uh, my milk bill is uh, three times higher than it was six months ago. Whereupon hundreds of liberals and leftists on Twitter attack the mock, mock and attack the parents for claiming this. Well, and and, well, I just I sorry to interrupt, but they did it in the in in an extremely ignorant way, too. They said, oh, please, let's look at the average price of milk last year and this year. See, clearly they're just lying. This is just all lies. But of course, that the average price of milk is of no help to someone who lives in a specific place. And then lots of people started responding by posting, look, here was milk last year when I bought it. Here's milk this year. The price is doubled. The price is doubled and a half. Like it's very clear that it was this idea, first of all, that that a lot of the of left Twitter doesn't understand what it's like to have a large family and has no understanding of what it would mean to feed a large family on a weekly basis and how the cost rise is actually massively felt and immediately felt every time you check out at the grocery store. But the contempt and the mockery was the thing that, again, like especially in the wake of the electoral results of this week, was pretty astonishing. The reporter on that story, Evan McMorris-Santoros, I believe, who cut his teeth at BuzzFeed, was over at Vice News for a long time, just went over to CNN very recently, reacted to this spontaneous outpouring of hostility towards this family with indignation. So he said, what, what is wrong with you people? How, why are you dunking on this poor family? They're telling you they're in dire straits. And your response to that is to mock them and dismiss them? And yes, of course it is, Evan. This is the audience that CNN has cultivated. This is the audience that Twitter but it, but has called But it was Twitter. Right, right. No, but this here, is the reaction. Yeah. No, no, you can't yeah. let CNN off the hook. No, this. I'm not letting CNN off the hook. I thought it was interesting. Adam McMorris and Pearl was the precisely the reaction that they have inspired in their audience over the course of, of uh, half a decade or more in which we've confused cynicism for wisdom mm-hmm. and uh, mockery and flippancy for seriousness right. of purpose. Uh, right. This is the fruits of that labor. Enjoy them. Okay, so first of all, there was the idea, this is like the attack on Joe the Plumber, right? Uh, The idea that, A, this couldn't be true because who drinks 12 gallons of milk a week? So they have like eight children, some of them foster children. So that's just terrible that they would have so much milk. And then it's like, well, that's like two glasses of milk per person. to Like who drinks that much milk? So I have actually, I have an easy answer for this. And it also involves... Uh, people of modest circumstances, which is you don't just use milk and drink it in a glass. You have milk with cereal, and kids eat a lot of cereal, and they often eat a lot of cereal when they don't want to eat anything else or when you don't have time to make a meal, and kids will eat cereal. That's true in my house, by the way, and not a lot. there's not a lot of milk drinking that goes out of my house, but we, we go through like four gallons of milk a week just from cereal. As any rational, non-psychotic person would understand, instead of searching for some reason to discredit a family that is that committed the inestimable crime of speaking sensibly to a reporter about their about their household budget and what they do when they buy things at the supermarket, and you put I mean, it in your coffee and in your cooking. Yeah. Right. Although if you're if you're you know if you're among those attacking them, I'm sure you don't you would never use an actual dairy product in your coffee. You'd use, right. You know, 
right. almond milk or it's almond milk right? only yeah, ape. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it is, it is, it was, it, it is a very telling, I'm only bringing this up because it is, it is a telling indicator of, I mean, this is like Pauline Kaleism on steroids. This is like, I don't know anybody who uses 12 gallons of milk. It's like, yeah, well, you know, that may be, may explain why a tsunami is about to hit your political priors. It started, the first wave hit, and a second wave is coming, and every single time you open your stupid mouth or go on Twitter and tweet something idiotic, you are hastening your doom. Okay, Chris Starwalt is going to chastise you for using such strong language. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, he, well... I should say that just br- yeah. briefly, you know, a lot of people aren't on Twitter and Twitter, they say Twitter doesn't matter. And I, it's true that it's, you know, it's, it's true. It's not representative of the general public, but everybody of influence is on there and everybody you're talking about, we're not talking about no names. These are, these are influential opinion makers with elite positions at major media institutions. So to the extent that Twitter is not representative of anything, it doesn't mean that the people on it aren't representative of anything. They're very influential and that makes it real. That's exactly right. I mean, you you it, that is that is a view of the American vanguard, and you're you're getting some sense of the gut knee jerk opinion of the American vanguard, and all that it indicates is a kind of progressive woke Marie Antoinetteism, right? I mean, Noah, you talk about this. There is the people say. You know, they don't like the direction of the country and they don't like what's going on in schools. They don't like mask mandates. They don't like this and they don't like that. And then the response by the by the people who are support are like, but we're throwing money at them. They're so ungrateful. Where is the gratitude for the money that is being thrown at them in the form of our subventions like a they they did it, which they didn't. The the support during COVID and the pandemic was bipartisan. Nobody gets credit. Nobody gets political credit for the for the uh, for the three hundred dollars a week in federal subventions. I'm sorry, that was that's in a bill that was passed by, by multiple bipartisan massive bipartisan majorities, or any subvention in COVID. That is, both parties get credit if you want to give credit. And second of all. People do not live on bread alone, you know? Yeah, there's something that uh, just the most recent example of this today came across my transom via the Huffington Post, uh, and the headline on the piece reads, quote, Republicans want parents to be angry. Democrats are trying to give them money. And the corollary to that line of thinking is, as you describe, just bitter resentment over Republicans, or rather parents of, of, of children, who aren't overcome with gratitude because of child tax credits and the polling around that sort of thing for people who want to make that permanent must be really disheartening because the last I saw it was just like one in three want to see this permanent. They, they don't appreciate just getting a check and progressives have one big idea, give people money. And if you don't have undying gratitude over that, they have no plan B. But it's also, it's, in a way, it's almost worse than that. It's like, we, we're giving you money. It's a kind of uh, ideological bribery, though. It's like, why are you so mad about our woke curriculum? We gave you all this money. Look, just be quiet and take your check. Right. And I you think a lot of parents... our, our, our exactly. condescension. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said it's, it, it is, it is ultimately, it is let them, let them eat cake in a, in a weird, twisty fashion. 
right? Except at least the whole point about Let Them Eat Cake was the Let Them Eat Cake was Marie Antoinette is so bizarrely out of touch with what it means to be starving that she doesn't know that if you say that people have no bread that they can't then have cake. And she likely never said it. We instead. should we should just right. say okay. this is a okay. so let me cake. birthday cake. It's but in the this stuff case that's sluffed off at the bottom of the of yeah. the oven. That's in this I'm case saying. it's okay. let them drink almond milk. <laughs> it is it is uh, we are. We don't let your kids go to school, and when they go to school, they're learning garbage. And then it's like, just go buy them a video game, then, you moron. You know, we're giving you money. You can buy. You can use that money to buy a video game, so that they can, you know, continue to live in ignorance and foolishness, and we can continue to peddle, you know peddle our revolutionary evil right over the as though you you won't know that it's happening and they know it's happening and with that we will bid you adieu for the weekend i hope you have a wonderful weekend don't go see the eternals it's bad and for for abe christina no i'm john Podhortz. keep the cattle burning